A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fellow time travelers, how lovely to be among you. It's always a pleasure to know you're out there, but I'm not speaking into the void. We travel through space and time together. As always, before starting this love letter... I want to say thank you to everyone who has joined at my patreon.com site. It's the finances, it's the cash coming through that portal that keeps the wheels on the bus and enables Paul and I to keep on doing this. So if you are a Patreon member, if you're uh, keeping that pipeline uh, open and refreshed, huge thank you. Uh, if you're not and you'd like to join, uh, if you think you'd like to become part of this extended family of um, history fans, people with questions curious types, then just go to patreon.com, look for me by name part with some cash, you can pay monthly or you can pay annually you pay once and it's cheaper if you pay for the whole year up front but whatever way you do it is fine by me uh, and as well as supporting the podcast, which is your philanthropic action, you, you get access to exclusive content question and answer sessions, competitions you also get access to one another, this is a community, there's a there's, there's, Thousands of people out there in this community, and they're all, a lot of conversations are going on, opinions are being shared, and all of the rest of it. One way or another, I think it's worth it, and I hope to see you there. Okay, now it's time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. As the gates opened, a ghastly sight arose before our eyes. Skeletons clad in skin with vacant eyes. Starvation, diarrhoea, typhus. All manner of disease stopped the prisoners still clinging to life. Beyond politics, beyond ideologies, beyond battles. A place where men, women and children were murdered, executed for the crime of being alive in the world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In the last episode it was the summer of 1940 when the deadly aerial battles raged across the skies of Britain. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, hello fellow time travellers. Yes, in last week's episode it was the height of the Battle of Britain. And we were with Winston Churchill on the day that inspired one of his most iconic speeches. This week it's a day in 1945 and as World War II draws closer to its conclusion, one of the great horrors of history is discovered. We're at the gates of Auschwitz-Birkenau with a Russian cameraman named Alexander Vorontsov as the Soviet army liberates the concentration camp. Hi Paul, 
And hi to all of those brothers and sisters presently travelling through space and time to hear the love letter to the world. Great to have you along. This week it's a it's a a, a dark a chapter in human history. One of the many dark chapters in human history that remind us all of the uh, the, the warnings, the the things we have to look out for, and to know that wickedness and evil are only ever separated from us by a gossamer thin screen that you could put your hand through at any moment. Uh, the specific moment in time that we're looking at today is the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the concentration camp that was one of many that were used by Nazi Germany for the wholesale extermination of Jewish people and many others besides uh, communists, uh, gypsies, uh, disabled people, anyone deemed undesirable by that regime was likely eventually to be rounded up and sent to one of the many work camps, concentration camps, death camps that were scattered all over occupied Europe during World War II. Auschwitz, that's the name I suppose that most people think of when you hear mention of the Holocaust. Holocaust means, uh, well, it, it translates, you could translate it to say everything is burnt. Uh, all is burnt, all is consumed by fire. It goes back to ritual sacrifice, actually. You know, where burnt offerings, you know, where an animal would be would be slaughtered and then its remains would be cooked or burned, you know, to be an offering up. And this was the Holocaust is, is is in that it's in that, but in the context of what happened during the nineteen thirties and forties, it's it was about the deliberate choreographed extermination of millions of people, and and Auschwitz is just that name that's synonymous with it for for most of us that are old enough to remember, well that, that were educated about it at school. A date you might want to hold in your heads is the 27th of January 1945, which is, well, it's it's Holocaust Memorial Day now, but that date was only made Holocaust Memorial Day in 2005. And it was, it was Russian soldiers. It was the Red Army of the USSR the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, they were the men who who arrived at the gates. Actually, on that date, they arrived at the gates of Birkenau. Birkenau was the largest of three camps that that, that together made up the Auschwitz complex in southern Poland. Uh, And so a, a group of Red Army soldiers arrived at the gates of hell on the 27th of January 1945. I think it's so important to remember that because these are the grandfathers of, and fathers, great-grandfathers, whatever, of those Russians, the Russian people who are being so vilified now. You know, know, the the war in Ukraine, but we're being invited to, to think we've always hated Russia and the Russians. And, and it reached a, a kind of a, a high point of, of obscenity at last year when a retired SS soldier in his 90s was given a standing ovation in the Canadian Parliament 
uh, in front of all of the assembled parliamentarians, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, Vladimir Zelensky, the, the President of, of Ukraine, all gave this guy a standing ovation. And he was celebrated in the oration that was given for having fought the Russians in World War II. Which was, through the looking glass, absurd. Most significantly, young people without a grasp of history were being invited to think that because Ukraine is at war with Russia now, and NATO and the West have taken the part of Ukraine in that conflict, that Russia has always been our enemy. When the Nazi regime would not have been defeated in the Second World War without the Red Army. That's just a, that's just a fact of history. So it's important to remember everything. You're not just bits and pieces. You've got to try and remember the whole picture so that you can even contemplate unpicking what we sometimes get told now, today, by those who would seek to propagandise and and mix up the facts to, to paint a, an alternative picture of the past. That place in, in southern Poland, where those three camps, satellites of one another, was constructed, uh, it was chosen for very practical logistical reasons when you get right down to it. It was where uh, many railway lines already intersected. Railway lines coming in from all over, you know, met it in that, in that area, at Auschwitz, Birkenau. And it meant that if your objective was to ship thousands, then tens of thousands, and then eventually millions of people to one place, well, the infrastructure was already there. So that's why the, that's why Auschwitz happened where it happened. And a lot of what we know about in relation to the liberation of that, the camp at Birkenau, comes down to, there was a, a Russian cameraman, filmmaker, called Alexander Vorontsov. And he was there, you know, like embedded, as they would say, in the modern parlance with the Red Army. And, you know, as, as he had filmed elsewhere, he filmed what happened when they entered the the twilight world of, of Birkenau. And he filmed for several days, you know, it was a long process of dealing with and coming to terms with, even in the short term, exactly what they were dealing with inside that camp. And Vorontsov filmed some of it. But as he, as he related later, it was about six o'clock in the evening of the 27th of January, 1945, when he stepped inside camp for the first time and they were confronted with like uh, you know just uh, everywhere was barracks these timber single story buildings you know, things you'd see now for you know the mass production of b battery hens or, or other livestock you know just these just these sheds these huge barrack sheds and they were everywhere and he you know, stepped inside and he, he didn't have any lights you know Indoor filming then as now is you know dependent upon lighting, and he didn't have any. wasn't He wasn't set up to do it, and so all that happened that first day was he just walked in as a human being and saw what was to be seen in the first of many barracks. And he said uh, subsequently, a ghastly sight arose before our eyes: a vast number of barracks, people lay in bunks inside many of them. They were skeletons clad in skin with vacant gazes. Which is a very, very descriptive 
a couple of sentences. It's it's estimated. Figures are always hard to come by. They flicker before our eyes like heat haze, but you know, there's a recurring estimate of about 1.3 million souls having been sent to that complex at Auschwitz-Birkenau over that period of years. And of those 1.3, 1.1 million, 1.1 million were murdered. Their lives were ended there. And of that 1.1 million, a million are estimated to have been Jewish people. So by the start of January, because the, the Nazi regime in Germany, they, they knew they were going to lose the war. They, they knew that the game was up and they had all this, well, unfinished business in the camps, in the concentration camps. They had all these people. What are they going to do with them? How are they going to explain their presence there? How, what, how, do, you, how do you manage that situation? And so by the start of January, they know that the Allies, the enemy, their enemy is coming and the, the Russians preeminent among them. So in the weeks before, they, there's about 60,000 people still captive in behind the wire, men, women and children. And so around or about the 18th of January, so like a week or a week and a half before the, the liberation, something like 56,000 of the 60,000 were rounded up those were the 56,000 of 60,000 who could still stand and walk because the, the, the enervating toll taken upon those men, women and children by their, however long they had been there by then, months, years, you know, they were, well, as, as Vorontsov had described, they were skeletons, you know, with a thin covering of skin. But around 56,000 of them were, were reckoned by their jailers, by the Nazis, to be fit to march. So they got them up on their feet and started moving them out of southern Poland and towards death camps in Germany. Because I think, right, we're about to lose control of where we are, this territory, so we'll pull out and we'll, we'll move all the evidence, I suppose, to somewhere else, because we might hold on to, you know, territory within Germany. And of those 56,000, a quarter died on that march, that death march, either of just, well, you can imagine, people are dying. Uh, anyway, and a, a quarter just succumbed to the conditions. It's January in southern Poland. It's winter, freezing, snow, weather, elements. They're weakened to the point of death, and so many of them just gave up the ghost on the road. Many were murdered, shot, bludgeoned, whatever, kicked to death along the way, but a quarter of those 56,000 died before they got anywhere, just left like so much you know, tattered humanity along the along the way. So you've got what four thousand or so who were left behind, and they were the they were the sickest of the sick, the old, the young, those that just the, even by the standards of the SS and the and the, and the Nazis were deemed you know we're never going to get them out of here. They can't can't move them, not without you know ambulances and the rest. So they were left behind, and obviously, given the conditions, well, starvation for a start, a diarrhoea, a, a typhus, and the rest. Because when you put people through years of privation, obviously they're starving to death, but once their bodies are weakened, they just become prey to 
everything under the sun. Their immune systems are gone. And with the dying all around them, with the corpses all around them, with the obscenely unsanitary conditions all around them, disease comes in. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've got war, you've got starvation, you've got disease and you've got death. And they're all there, stalking the 4,000 that are, that are still notionally still alive behind the wire. And amongst them, amongst the, the, those left behind, were Primo Levi, the Italian chemist. And people who've been on, the, on this journey from the beginning, well, we've already met Primo Levi in another, in another part of this story of the world. And Primo Levi had been a, a partisan he was a young Italian, he was a chemist, he was a qualified man, but he joined the those fighting the, the Nazi enemy. But he was captured, amongst many others, and uh, Jewish, uh, uh, Italian Jewish, and he ended up in, one way or another, he ended up in Auschwitz. Uh, but he, he survived, and he was there at the end. Eventually, Primo Levi went back, got back to Italy, and picked up his life again. And he wrote as well as being a chemist, a scientist, he wrote many books, including two books that sort of come together. The first one is called Sequesto e un uomo, If This is a Man, If This is a Man. And the, the, the second book is The Truce. If This is a Man is a, a very rational, if that's possible, description of everything that he saw. And The Truce, the second book, is about him coming to terms, get, getting beyond it, getting beyond Auschwitz, although he never did. But that's what the truce is all about. But, you know, first things first, when the SS marched all the 56,000 away, they're now abandoned. They're just in a, they're in a camp without guards. And Primo Levi recounted how he and a, a friend, they made their way to the abandoned SS quarters where they found food and vodka, and medicines, drugs, uh, even eiderdowns, you know, quilts. And they took back what they could. They took back all this stuff to share with those who were too weak to move. But then on the 27th of January, the Russian soldiers come in, and it, they found and documented and recorded the existence of all the belongings, the human belongings that had been amassed during the years of the operation of Auschwitz. You know, famously, the Nazis had kept everything of value, everything that they thought could be recycled and reused. Uh, they were very practical, if you like to use that word, about what they were doing. You know, in amongst the obscenity of it all, they saw the utility of it. You know, they were making, they were making things from the dead people. And they were certainly reusing all their stuff. And so the, the, it was the Russian soldiers that, that found famously that that which is still there for people to see, piles and piles of clothing, because the people arrived in their, in their everyday clothes and then were divested of all of that and they were put into the prison concentration camp uniforms, you know, the striped pyjamas set up. But all their clothes were kept for reuse. Hundreds of thousands of pairs of shoes the shoes of men, the shoes of women, the shoes of children and babies, tons of human hair, piles and piles of human hair had been shorn from the from the from the people 
uh, and was to be reused. Stuffing for cushions, stuffing for mattresses, and teeth, gold fillings, piles and piles, barrel loads of of gold fillings that had been extracted from the from the mouths of the of the dead after they were dispatched in the gas chamber. And you know, so it's definitely a moment. It's definitely it's a gruesome, dreadful, shameful moment. But this is war. This is one of the ways in which war is prosecuted. You know, and, and it was revealed by the liberation that you're dealing there in the Second World War with politics and an ideology that culminated in in the dehumanising, first of all, and then the wholesale murder of men, women and children. And it, you might say that they were convicted of the crime of having been alive in the world. Before the Nazis killed them, the processing, the, the, the process of being in, put through the concentration camp, put in the ghettos and, then, and then, then loaded onto animal trucks for transportation to places like Auschwitz, and then the process of working them before they were finally put into gas chambers and, and murdered directly, they were to be dehumanised. The, the, the Nazi regime took the trouble to, to try and persuade these people before they died that they deserved to die for being who and what they were. It's an extraordinary thing. When I was at school, which is, let's say, in the 19... I suppose I was at secondary school in the in the 1980s, we were taught about it. I Certainly, I studied history anyway at school, but there was a general attempt to educate all of us, whether we did history or not, that the, that the Holocaust had happened... Because the message from it was that it was not to be forgotten. It's never to be forgotten. And it was never to be allowed to happen again. Never forget this. Always remember it. And if you're aware that this can happen, did happen, this must never be allowed to happen again. And I, had, I remember, I didn't, uh, I didn't study German at school, but obviously there was a German department. And there was a, a teacher... He'll be he'll be dead now. He was we called him J Z Graham, J Z, and he was a he was a quite intimidating figure. He was an older man, even then, and J Z stood for John Zbietziev, and he was a, a Polish um, Jew, and he had. Now I'm not I can't remember now if he had. What his exactly what happened to him? But he had certainly lost family. He'd certainly lost, you know, his parents, maybe or siblings, friends, relatives to the gas chambers. And I remember, I remember Jay Z confronting people, even even teenagers, with the with with what had happened, with the footage taken by the likes of Alexander Vorontsov. Uh, and it always stayed with me that. I've, I always stayed with. I saw the footage as well, and I always, obviously, it stayed with me. And it's so important. I say that whenever you see or suspect, even even begin to suspect that anything like it might happen again, you've got to hold your hand up and say, "You don't wait until it is happening." By the time the Soviet army was liberating Burkina, it happened. Millions of people were dead, which is too late, obviously. 
and you've really got to not be scared now to pay attention. And where you see in the world people being gathered together behind the wire, or where you even before that, where you see people being othered, where you see people being dehumanised, you know, where people are encouraged to see other people as less. You, you hear it now in the world. You hear you hear people uh, talking about vermin. And, and you hear people being likened to life forms that are less than human in various ways. And to me, that's, a, that's the smoke. That's the smoke before the fire. And it has to be faced up to. We mustn't ever think that the Holocaust or, or something like it could never happen again. All you can seek to do is to endeavour to try and stop something like that ever happening again. Because that appetite never goes away. It's, it's there in human nature. There are those that would see to it that other types of people were done away with altogether. That's there. That's in human nature. And it's not going away. And all we can do is try and pay attention and make sure, as far as we're able to, as individuals and collectively as populations, make sure that these things are never allowed to that these kinds of fires are never allowed to kindle again. Vorontsov, Alexander Vorontsov, he said, he was interviewed subsequently, and he said that the memory of it stayed with him, which is hardly surprising. Imagine, I mean, the smells, the sights, the emotions. He said it stayed with him my whole life long. All of this was the most moving and most terrible thing that I saw and filmed during the war. Time has no sway over these recollections. It has not squeezed all the horrible things I saw and filmed out of my mind. War, by whatever means, equals piles of corpses. That's what happens. Somebody else said war doesn't decide who's right, war decides who's left. You know, I've written about the First World War and I've written about the Second World War, but for me, the fascination and the hook is not the politics and the ideologies. It's just the fact that regardless of all of that, you end up with human beings dead. You know, black, white and brown, young and old, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, whatever. That's all you get from war. It's piles of corpses. In 1979, Auschwitz camp is still there. Elsewhere, the concentration camps, after the war, after the liberation and the repatriation and whatever, they were just done away with. You know, people didn't want them there anymore. They just wanted them gone. But Auschwitz is still there. And in 1979, it was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's on the same list as Machu Picchu and Neolithic Orkney, because it's part of the story. It's part of the story of the world, you know, and it and it, it has you have to remember the dark as well as the light. That's otherwise stuff happens again. As I mentioned at the top, in 2005, the date of 27th of January was made International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And it has to be all about remembrance. It happened to those millions of people then. But if we don't keep our eye on the ball. Sooner or later, it'll happen to other millions of other people somewhere else. At 11am, the sky is filled by the brightest flash of light 
the thunder of a monstrous explosion follows, then a great blast like the sweeping hand of a wrathful god. No one knows for sure how many were killed by that brightness and that thunder, but it's estimated that over 100,000 perished at Nagasaki. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com and I'll be delighted to welcome you there. I have a new website address, easy for these complicated times. It's just neiloliver.com. I have a shop for merchandise related to this series of podcasts. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all sorts. My Instagram account is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and perhaps write a review to convince the online crowd that they should join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 